Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, COVID-19, Football Zero. Yes, the game is literally gone. We're still here, though, and we've never been more vital. As today, we field your questions, tell you how the season would have ended, and boldly reanimate the mouldy corpse of a long-dead season for some zombie football, featuring Michael Cox's favourite game ever. Woof. It's the Totally No Football Show in association with Paddy Power. to keep track of all the football but your best chance is here thousands and thousands of hours of football each more climactic than the last constant dizzying 24 hour year long endless football every kick of it massively mattering to someone presumably yep halcyon days Mitchell and Webb got their wish no football all the time listen how are you doing are you at home are you heading into work Uh, if you're unwell get well soon all those kind of things here in the studio uh, we are joined by Tom Williams. Hi, Tom. Hello, James. Also in is Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi, Michael. And uh, Patient Zero, uh, James Horncastle is here with us. Hello, James. Hi there. Fresh back from singing opera off your balcony, I imagine, you Italian you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was last there February 13th, right. so I am able to come in. Okay, good. But very much thinking of my Italian friends at the moment. Right, absolutely. Michael, how was your weekend with no football? I actually did go to a very low-level game. Oh, did you? Went to a ninth division game between Fisher FC and Punjab United in uh, in Bermondsey. Right, how did that go? Uh, 2-0 to Fisher in front of a crowd of 170. Okay, because just listen, before we came in, Michael announced that this was the worst thing he'd done all week coming in for this podcast, that he'd been otherwise pretty much keeping himself to himself but now we discover that he's actually been hanging out with 170 football fans at Punjab well I mean like, there's no real stands there was, right. I mean it's basically a park right and I cycled there mm. so okay all right then thanks for coming in today anyway Tom how's your weekend been a bit shapeless really mm. uh, without any football um, I mean as Michael was saying it's it's not all that it's not all that different to an international weekend right except except Mrs. Brown's this boys is going to be it now for weeks and weeks and months and months and it yeah. is it is I was supposed to be at Villa Park yesterday for the Aston Villa Chelsea game um, so I hadn't I didn't have any time to make any significant alternative plans and yeah I did feel a little bit lost getting out of bed with nothing to do oh Tom Still, there's this. Yeah, so you know, that very quickly filled me with uh, filled yeah. me with joy and focus. Something mm. good. Okay, Morgan writes. He says, "Are you continuing Totally Football Show? And what will you talk about?" Well, uh, some of the things that we mentioned in the intro, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff actually. Matt Knight uh, requesting some Golazzo-style lookbacks on English league action, and uh, Matt, good news on on the way as as, as Michael indeed busts out that that uh, favourite game of all, all time of his, which actually it's surprisingly non-niche, Michael. I would have expected something a little bit less mainstream. but we'll, because it's Premier League? Well, It's impossible to be niche, being the most sold and broadcast league in the world. Kind of is, kind of is. Anyway, uh, the first thing that we're going to be discussing, though, is where are we at with getting football back? Will the season ever return? Let's dial up uh, Rory Smith of the New York Times, because he's probably bored too, and ask him. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. First off, what's going to happen? Do you think? Uh, that's a very good question. Not really sure. Um, okay. I think that it would be a shame if anyone made 
a decision in the next week. I don't think that decision has to come now. But the fact that all the leads are suspended until April the 3rd is clearly like a placeholder. And I would guess around the end of March, they'll come back and say, right, we're actually suspended until the start of May, mm. which makes sense. And then I think that might give them chance to see how it, how the pandemic plays out, how kind of the situation varies from country to country and to come up with what may need to be quite a creative solution. OK, currently in, in Italy, they're talking about postponing Euro 2020, which I think is the starting point for pretty much everybody. You wait for meeting or doing a tele-meeting about that on Tuesday and then playing from the start of May, they hope, through to the end of June and just getting everything out of the way. And I, I imagine a similar scenario might be favoured in this country as well, but it's a lot to sort out and there's no guarantee they'll be able to come back. Now, in your opinion, do you think this season is ever going to come back? My, my instinct at the moment, and I've been chewing it over, like I think probably everyone who cares about football has been for the last few days, even though clearly the caveat has to be that there's much more important stuff to worry about. Um, my instinct now, as things stand, is that I think it's almost too complicated not to finish the season. Because we, you know, we, a lot of the focus is on will Liverpool win the, win the league? How do you sort out relegation? Who does the Champions League? And th- those are all valid questions. But the bigger issue, I think, is actually with the broadcasters. So Sky and BT have invested an awful lot of money in Premier League football, uh, as have countless broadcasters around the world. There's countless broadcasters around the world who've invested a lot of money in Champions League football and to an extent the Europa League. So they now have huge holes in their schedules, which means that advertising won't be filling it and subscribers will start to drift away. If, you, if you're facing two or three months without any football, you may well cancel your Sky subscription, and you'd be within reason because you may well be facing huge economic pressures elsewhere in your life. At some point, those broadcasters are going to say, well, look, we kind of need the content that we've already paid for. Because a lot of the TV money, I think, is paid up front. I wouldn't like to speculate about how much of that money has already effectively been spent or otherwise committed by the clubs, but I suspect it's a decent proportion of it. Sky and BT and all of the other broadcasters could presumably at some point issue kind of legal proceedings to ask for that money back. And I'm not sure anyone can do that. My instinct is that the the starting point for not only the Leeds, but UEFA as well, will be, look, is there any way of finishing this season so that even if the broadcasters lose their content for April and May, that they get it back in kind in June and July and August? It's unimaginable that they'd stage Euro 2020, not just because of the nature of the competition, not just because of the timing of it, but partly because what sort of state are any of the teams going to be in? Even if they shoved it back a month, which is hugely problematic logistically, would teams be fit? Would they all be coming off the back of these super cramped ends of seasons? It makes a lot of sense to move to move the Euros. I think I'd be staggered if that doesn't happen on Tuesday or at some point relatively soon. And from that point on, I think they will be looking first and foremost at how to finish the season the complication there is can you then get into kind of a creative solution where you end up maybe shifting the euros back to winter and playing them at the same time as afcon uh, there's another copper america in the summer there's always a copper america in the summer so so they couldn't they'd maybe have to move that one they wouldn't want to miss one um it would be awful to go more than six months without a copper america um you then maybe look at finishing the season this season in autumn when everything hopefully is has kind of calmed down and settled down and returned to something approaching normal. Do you then run the 2021 season winter to winter and then get in line with the Qatar World Cup? That's not a dreadful solution, I don't think. I would imagine anyway, that is the, the this has now become a long ramble, James, I'm very sorry. Um, the I would imagine this, the starting point would be, can we finish the season in right. some way, just because the broadcasters are what really matters. Well, I'm, I'm heartened that you think we will get to finish the season. I must admit, my kind of 
suspicion is that the way things are escalating, that step by step we'll move towards a, a place in which we just say, look, it's not going to be possible. And then the question would be, are we going to honour Liverpool's campaign? Are we going to crown them champions? Are we going to take the approach outlined by Karen, Brady? by Karen Brady in the column she's paid to do in that newspaper? What do you think? Well, I think there's, there's arguments for all three potential solutions for playing on when, when possible, for voiding it completely, and for deciding it in some way based on the current standings. Now, in England, you couldn't really do that. You can't relegate Villa when they've played one game fewer than everybody else. That's, that's clearly unfair. You could maybe extrapolate points per game out. That doesn't strike me as being ideal either. I think Liverpool's title will obviously attract a lot of attention. And it's amazing, actually, how many people, how many Liverpool fans think the season should definitely continue. But how many Everton and Manchester City fans and Manchester United fans are adamant that it should not? I mean, it's great that people can really set aside tribal loyalties in a time like this. <laughs> you, James, obviously are, are too polite and kind of erudite to say it. But I think the, self, the self-interest that came out from that Karen Brady column is, is absolutely astonishing. And it's interesting that the two clubs who we know have already made their minds up, they haven't West Ham have said it publicly. Spurs, Spurs are obviously in a position whereby they are prepared. It's sufficiently decided that it can leak, that that's what they want to do. Again, you don't need to make that decision now. You shouldn't be thinking, what can we get from this now? Just potentially, if you avoid the season, you award Champions League places on coefficients. And who's in the top four on coefficients? It's the Tottenham team that aren't in the top four on the table. So I think to look at it like that at this stage is crass. Looking at it like that in two months is, is a bit different. You can maybe make the case then more more legitimately. Liverpool's title is kind of almost an easy thing for the Premier League to do to at least resolve one thing because it, it's obvious they're going to win it. More complicated is Champions League. How do you sort out relegation? How do you sort out promotion? And across Europe, what do you do in Serie A? Do you say that, what, Juve play Lazio at Juve at some point to decide who's champion? That's difficult. There's only one point between them. So maybe there you have to avoid it. But if you avoid it, you get legal challenges from the teams who could be promoted. I mean, to be honest, Rory, there <laughs> some clubs are, still have legal challenges open from Scudettos they thought were theirs <laughs> in the 1920s. So. Yeah. <laughs> but as you say, Rory, there's no rush to come up with the answers because uh, it is an evolving situation. Thank you so much for... Uh, for taking time out from whatever it is you were filling your Sunday with to talk to us about that. Uh, be well, and we hope to catch up with you again soon. You too. Thank you very much for having me. Rory Smith of the New York Times. Tom. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, as Rory says, from a sporting integrity position, the most desirable outcome would be for this season to be played to a conclusion in some way, even if that means it doesn't happen until later this year. But I think a big cut-off point that people need to be aware of is June the 30th, when players' contracts will be expiring and the season will officially, in a legal sense, finish. So if we can't squeeze in all the games that need to be squeezed in by then there are going to be big difficulties that need to be sorted out. I mean, my my feeling would be that if we can somehow finish this season, this year, even if we have to wait till October, November, whatever, let's do it. Uh, even if that means then having a truncated 2020-2021 season. Um, but that June 30 cut-off point might be a fly in the ointment in that respect. No, I mean, that is one of the fascinating aspects of the next few months because you look at the amount of transfer deals now, which are, quote-unquote, loans for a year, 18 months to two years, which clubs kind of bank on um, as being permanent transfers. Um, and usually those deals are made permanent by players making 5, 10, 15 appearances, reaching the Champions League with the club that they've just joined, scoring however many goals. You saw it with Emre Chan, for example. 
he made what two or three appearances for Dortmund, scored a few goals, and all of a sudden that became permanent. There are lots of clubs like Inter, for example, who've got so many players out on loan, hoping that, for example, PSG would take Mario Icardi on a permanent basis. Icardi's fallen out of favour, fallen out of form. He probably would have had two and a half, three months to maybe stake his claim um, to stay at PSG. And PSG think, oh, that 70 million is not looking that bad anymore. And now that's gone. And all of a sudden, the prospects of Inter getting that money and other clubs getting that money, finding themselves in similar situations, is gone. So that's another knock-on effect of the uncertainty that we find ourselves in at the moment. Mm. Well, football off for the moment, possibly definitively for this season. Robbie Bailey says, can you simulate the results for the rest of the season, assuming the same scorelines as the reverse fixtures? You know what, Robbie? We can. And it sounds a little bit like this. Should you not? Well, no. It's it's the best guide possible. These teams with the remaining fixtures have all played each other already. What happened in those games? Yeah, and they Here's might have been what? missing players through injury suspension. You've got yeah, a there's always some X factor, in the middle. But this is the best guide that we have. This is the best data that we have that we can mine from which we can extrapolate. Here's what would happen, no question, using Robbie Bailey's system. Don't at me. Going into the last day, based on the results in the reverse fixtures, Norwich would already be down with Watford, Villa and Bournemouth fighting to avoid the last two places. Hmm? Liverpool, Man City, Leicester and Chelsea would be confirmed as the top four. Liverpool, obviously, as the champions. Man United in sixth would be two points with one game to play behind Wolves in fifth. On the final day, Michael, what happens? I don't don't know. (laughs) I'll tell you. Man United steal fifth place and possibly a Champions League spot because Wolves suffer an unlikely 5-2 defeat at Stamford Bridge, while United win 1-0 at the King Power, with Harry Maguire with his arms aloft. Wow. Yeah. Bournemouth, meanwhile, survive. How about that? After an equally unlikely 3-1 at Goodison Park, Villa, Watford and Norwich go down. Watford probably might have been better off had they not lost 8-0 to Man City again. (laughs) (laughs) Twice in one season. You know, once. He's careless, but... Uh, Arsenal, meanwhile, broke the record for the most draws in a Premier League season... On the last day with a 2-2 draw against the Hornets. How about that? Exhilarating stuff, eh? Saved you a lot of time with that. <laughs> Freed up a lot a lot of time. Anyway, give Liverpool the title. That's the message. Alrighty. Tom, after this, we're going to field some of the main questions being asked by Totally Football Show listeners. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. We asked you, listener, what's the best or worst thing about a no-football weekend? Which should you point out, Michael, is actually not that uncommon a thing. I mean, they happen all the time, don't they? Well, I understand in two weeks' time people will be pretty lost and pretty bored. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people say international break, waste of time. I'm not watching England against Moldova. And then... You know, that's all we've had. We've only had one weekend without football. I think I think even I can put up with that. Right. In Italy on Saturday night, they just ended up playing, I think, Italy's knockout games from the 2006 World Cup. So I don't know why we don't just do that. We just right. put, you know, well, sort of like... Brown's boys, James. We don't, we don't need that. <laughs> it's been taken care of. Yeah. 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 And Stuart Pearce playing punk records on TalkSport. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd have that over Mrs. Brown's Boys. But then Maybe. I'd have literally anything. I'd have watching a blank TV screen for an hour and a half over Mrs. Brown's Boys. So mm. that's not I mean, no one's all stopping that you from doing that. This is true. I mean, who knows where we'll be in four weeks? That might <laughs> that might be an attractive use of my time. Very possibly. So, Tom, uh, worst thing for you of the footballers weekend was Mrs. Brown's Boys. Yeah, obviously I didn't watch it, but just knowing that it was on where Match Maybe of the Day should have been. No, I, I've watched Green Mrs. Brown. My parents are big fans, so oh, they, okay. we watch it at Christmas. Right. Uh, so I know how bad it is, okay. and I can't imagine that the live show is any bit less bad than than the other. All right, was there version. a best bit in amongst all that? Was there a silver lining for you? No, I mean okay. no. It's nice doing other stuff, you know. Yeah. Okay, James. Uh, it was a glorious Saturday night in the Horncastle household because we, my wife and I, we got to catch up on Love Is Blind on on Netflix, um, where sort of these couples get together. They don't actually see each other; they just oh. generate a relationship based on conversations through a glass, which is obviously um, dark, dark. Um, and then they do get to meet each other after they propose to each other. So they get engaged and then they have to what? kind of get married. How long married. do they spend on the other Six side days. The... Six days of conversations right. with various different dates. And they decided they're going to propose or not? I mean, aside from two guys who I felt really bad for and two girls, um, the rest kind of got engaged. Um, on and the basis of six days of talking with somebody. Six days of, of conversation, yeah. And you then get to see them go on kind of like a holiday to get to know each other, get the physical kind of see if there's a physical attraction as well as the right. kind of mental attraction that they've developed uh-huh. and then you, it goes all the way to their wedding day Weddings. and you get to see who gets married who doesn't because it, I, I assume they're contractually obliged to see it through to the wedding day right but the crucial moment I imagine is when the glass is removed and they, they get to see each other yes they've already proposed to each other by that stage right um, but it's just magnificent TV oh, it's it's unbelievable have you seen this Michael I was made to watch the first episode of it and if I ever watch the second episode then the coronavirus thing has really ruined my life because it was not enjoyable oh Michael come on as an experiment it's it's quite something I tell you what I generally watch like every or at least highlights of every Premier League game but I've had this kind of sneaky secret that I actually didn't watch the midweek round just before Christmas and part of that actually was the totally Christmas party but I've no idea what happened between Arsenal and Brighton in December I've no idea whether Freddie Youngberg will get the job on a permanent basis <laughs> so I'm actually really looking forward to watching so that so you're going to go back and relive maybe tomorrow yeah alright nice looking forward to it okay I mean lots of you wrote in Rocket says miss the European pod and looking through all the results and hearing dross commentary about goalkeepers that nobody knows anything about we'll, we'll be doing a European pod uh, on and Monday commentary on goalkeepers I'm yeah, sure no, I mean, I mean, but that goes you can't saying. have one without the other yeah so that's nice but it, it is nice to have the opportunity to explore some other topics uh, for example Adam Gordon asked if each of the panel could go back in time and attend a great match they were not present at what game would it be and why Michael have you thought about this one I have I had a few thoughts I think it'd probably be this might be the kind of answer James would give, but I think the 2006 uh, World Cup semi-final between mm-hmm. Italy and Germany was just an incredibly intense... I mean, it was nil-nil for, what, 118 minutes, and usually we say nil-nil was a bad, but that was just... The level of tension, it was just fantastic. And the, the two goals that won it for Italy to eliminate Germany on home soil was... Uh, I thought it was just probably the best World Cup game that I've seen, so I would love to... And at Dortmund Stadium as well, obviously yeah. one of the most iconic in Europe. Well, so. Germany had never lost. Yeah. There's a Golazzo on that, I think, isn't there? On the There's 2006 a 2006 World Cup, World Cup yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tom? I, th- I mean, if I was going to pick a modern game from my lifetime mm. that I watched on telly but wasn't present for, it would probably be that one. Oh. Um, but to pick a historic game, right. I'd go for something like Brazil, Italy, 1970 yeah. World Cup final. That'd be amazing. And the Azteca. Yeah, but wow. if, if you watch it... Yeah, it's the moment. It's the history, Michael. <laughs> what, what about the semi-final, the uh, the four-three uh, Italy, Italy Germany? West Germany? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible. That yeah, would be amazing. the game of five the goals in extra time was it? Right. Five, six. Mm. Everyone dressed six in brown, smoking time. tabs. Brilliant. All right, what what about you, James? Uh, uh, probably Milan Napoli. That title decider back in oh right 80s. the air quotes title decider. Yeah, yeah. 87. Oh, sorry, 87 then. 87, yeah. Right. When they stopped Napoli repeating. Yeah, full house, full house at the San Paolo, Maradona. Right. Hey, how about going to Athens to watch Milan do Cruyff's dream team 4-0? Oh, yeah, I suppose that's a good one, James. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, loads of great games. Hey, today, we're going to look back on some of those. And actually, in, in our European show, coincidentally, we're going to be dredging up some, uh, some European glories. Looking forward to that. That'll be out Tuesday morning. Christian Stilp says, which title or top four chasers around Europe are going to benefit most from suspended play? I mean, I don't think anyone at this point. Well, teams, with, teams with injured players. Yeah. You look at the Premier League, your Chelsea's, your Manchester United's, your Spurs, Spurs's, who've all got injury gluts, wow. and give it a couple of months. Yeah. They'll all be, you know, they'll all be fully fit. And also, you wonder whether over this, this period of suspension, however long it lasts, yeah. they might have tactical work that teams will be able to do because they won't be able to do anything else. Theoretically, if and when the Premier League resumes, it, each team will be more tactically drilled than any teams in the history of the English will, top flight. Will they? Or will they be- that because a, teams aren't training. They can't train. True, but I mean, you can know. But this is stuff you could do remotely. A, a video conferencing <laughs> tactical session of a Wednesday afternoon. You've got nothing better to do. Right. Could be a game changer. Chris Shoot Worrell says, "Does the pod think the pandemic has curiously underlined how central football has to become to English and perhaps European culture? Does anything else hold such a strong cross-national sway over cultural behaviour?" No, no, it's nothing. I mean, there really is. I was thinking about this when I was doing the, the book I did, which is about European football. I mean, there's just there's nothing that unites you know, Western European countries, really all the European countries. And it's been incredible watching the news, actually. I mean, obviously, as a big football fan, but the emphasis that was put on the Premier League suspending its games. Anyone who's not interested in football must think, why on earth is this such a big issue? But it was it was almost, aside from the very, the very basics, if you like, of the coronavirus, it was the top item, um, which is extraordinary. But yeah. All right, here's another top item. Dino says, can you discuss why dribbling isn't so much of a thing anymore? I saw this question. I'm not sure whether that is statistically true i think it's certainly less true through the center of the pitch because teams are so compact it's difficult to find space and pick up speed but out wide i mean you do still have lots of uh mazy dribblers you know we talk a lot about one-on-one situations out wide so i'm not sure that's necessarily true mm. pep guardiola says that he looks for players who can dribble almost more than players who can do anything else because his his reasoning is that you can improve technical things like your first touch and your ability to spot and play passes, but dribbling is one thing that is very difficult to coach. It's that, that sort of classic, you either have it or you don't sort of thing. And Guardiola's a big fan of dribblers, likes to find room in his team for dribblers because I think in, in an increasingly sort of systemised game, a player who can beat two or three players mm-hmm. is more valuable than almost anything because it's something you can't defend against. It's Who's, because his teams always come up against sizes with a low block. <laughs> yeah, so you need, you need all the variety you can get in the final third, and dribbling is one, you know, one source of that sort of variety. Who's your favourite dribbler at the moment, Tom? My favourite current dribbler? I mean, Messi. Is it? 
Yeah, yeah, probably. I think Mbappé's got to be up there as well, isn't he? Not? not so much of a dribbler. Do you not? So you remember when Cristiano Ronaldo came through, right? Like doing all his stepovers, and I remember thinking, oh, it's, it's gonna, it won't be long before he scores a really special individual goal, right? I'm not sure he ever has, which seems like a remarkable thing to say about Cristiano Ronaldo. But dribbling, like close control, beating a small number of people in a, in a, a, a confined area, right, is not part of Ronaldo's game. It's not really part of Mbappe's game either. He scored a fantastic goal against Lyon the other week. That's Mbappe. why it's in my head. Yeah, but that's that was the first time he's ever scored a goal <laughs> like that. You make a fair point. That's not the main point of his game. Favorite dribbler, Michael, or something else entirely? Well, no, I was just going to say, I, I think Guardiola's changed his philosophy slightly because I remember when he was at Barcelona, he was he was almost quite against dribbling and he referred to that goal, that the famous goal Messi scored against Getafe where he kind of did a Maradona and went through the whole side. He said he watched that goal and he thought it was almost a last resort because the player, the rest of the team wasn't in the right structure to offer passes and, you know, his favoured approach was passing through teams. And I think at that time he was very insistent that if a player dribbles, it shouldn't necessarily be to beat an opponent. It should be dribbling into space to attract pressure and then you can pass through it. And I think as football's evolved and he's come up against more sides who sit really deep, he's gone in more for players who can directly beat players. But in his early Barcelona sides, aside from Messi, who was almost a little bit outside the system, I think, because he was so special individually, he didn't really favour dribblers. I mean, someone like Pedro was going in behind, Villa was going in behind. Players who kind of overindulged, he tended to cast aside a little bit. Right. Just to pitch in another modern dribbler, okay, yeah. Marco Verratti, yeah. not a conventional dribbler, and that he won't beat a string of players, and he does it in the stupidest parts of the pitch. But there's nothing more exciting, I think. Equally the most exhilarating and maddening mm. modern footballer to watch, because really? when it comes off, it's, yeah. I mean, it just leaves you speechless, you and when cool. it doesn't, yeah. he is, you know. It's, it's interesting what Michael says about you don't often see dribblers through the middle of the pitch, mm. because I think one of the players who's caught the eye this year in Italy is a midfielder called Gaetano Castrovilli for Fiorentina. And he has that kind of Musa Dembele ability to just wriggle past players. And I think he's the second highest dribbler in Serie A. Um, who's the top? Well, the top, it's interesting you should say that, James, because I've interviewed him for The Athletic. Oh, yeah. um, it's Jeremy Boga. Is it? Who was uh, at Chelsea and has been at Sassuolo the last couple of years. Um, and he is miles out in front of everybody else. In is there Italy. a good YouTube compilation people can enjoy of Jeremy Boga? I mean, in some respects, it's uh, a shame, although yeah, there are more important things than football, that the season ended when it did because he started 2020 in, in great form, four goals in eight games. Right. So, yeah, exciting player. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Dembele because I think Dembele is one of the most interesting players in general we've seen in the Premier League in the last few years because he was so good at going past opponents. Started out as a winger when he first came to his... Uh, a Fulham player and then moved into the centre and I, there was a really really interesting interview with him a few years ago uh, by Laura Williamson and she spoke to him about his childhood playing uh, in Belgium and the type of football he played and he said that him and his friends used to play football in a basketball court that didn't have any goals so the football that they played the point of the game was you had to dribble past everyone and then stop the ball at the bottom of the kind of basketball pole and that explains Dembele completely because he was such a good dribbler, but he couldn't play through balls and he couldn't shoot. I mean, his goal scoring record was dreadful and he grew up playing this game where there's no shooting involved. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, incredible. Another really interesting one is Frankie de Jong. And we haven't seen the best of him at Barcelona, but mm. his performances for Ajax, I mean, the way he dropped into defence and then would just motor. You know, it was almost like when you play in FIFA or whatever, you just hold down on the sprint. He was 
I've never seen a player dribble like that before. It was incredible. And I think one of the reasons that he is still finding his feet at Barcelona, quite apart from the fact that you would expect a young player to take a bit of time to find their feet at a club like that, is that they're not giving him as much responsibility as Ajax did. Whereas Michael said he was the deep line midfielder. He came and fetched the ball from the centre-backs or the goalkeeper and then just ran with it. Whereas at Barcelona, invariably, it's still Busquets who who plays as the, the number six. De Jong's playing a little bit further up. I suspect we won't see the best of De Jong until he feels like he's a boss of that midfield right. and he can start collecting the ball in the areas he used to collect at Ajax and start running the show as, as he did when he was at Ajax. Okay, dribbling. Thanks, Dino, for that question. Next up, uh, freed as we are from the relentless onslaught of new football, there's a chance for us to stop, smell the coffee and uh, dig up some of the truly special games and seasons from the past that can get otherwise a little bit buried under all the modern stuff, like that midweek round from Christmas time for you, <laughs> Michael. Gasp then as we bring you next our inaugural zombie football. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Extra large laundry baskets? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. Zombie football. That's right. Reanimating great games of the past, zombie football taking you back to 2013-14. It's the sound of happy, which you were listening to in 2014 as you came home from that cinema where you've been watching Frozen, because that's what people did in 2014. John Wick in 2014, which is... It's quite dark, isn't it? It's one of the great franchises. Anyway, it was a mixed-up time. That much is pretty clear. The world was worrying about Ebola or Ebola. Remember that? Russia had told the UN Crimea River as they annexed part of the Ukraine, while in sport, the IOC had just awarded Tokyo the right to host the 2020 Summer Olympics. Looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Uh, Meantime, football was at least enjoying a truly phenomenal finale to the 2013-14 Premier League title race. A race... That involved four teams. Arsenal, I know. Chelsea, Jose Mourinho's little horses. Man City and Liverpool, who, after decades of waiting, look set to finally land the title. Now, Michael, you've written the definitive history of the Premier League, the mixer. You picked this season out as one of your favourites tactically. Why? Yeah, I mean, not just tactically, but I think in general it was just incredibly entertaining. There were so many incredible scorelines between the top sides I mean like you say a lot of people forget that Arsenal were so involved in that race I think at the end of February Chelsea were one point clear of Arsenal at the top of the league and I think before I mean I think through the whole season where there were 25 changes of lead that in through that campaign but Arsenal had been on top more than any other team yeah I mean they were top on I think it was Valentine's Day midway through February when they went to Liverpool and lost 5-1 got absolutely mm. destroyed really but on top of that there was some I mean really just brilliant games between the title contenders. It was interesting, the position with with Liverpool, because their season had begun in anything but the kind of circumstances that you'd think would lead to a title challenge. Suarez was banned for five games still. That was from the Ivanovic bite. 
Yes. And he was also essentially at war with the club. Yeah, I mean, he was desperate to leave. He was desperate to go to Barcelona. And really, there was a standoff at the training ground where he was essentially banned from Melwood, I think, for a couple of weeks. And I gather it was Steven Gerrard who played a really instrumental role in convincing him to stay. Basically went to him and said, look... Don't let this slip now. Well, that, that came a little bit later. But if you remember, this was the summer where Arsenal had bid £40 million plus one pound. Uh, for him and Gerard's, I mean, Suarez, smoking? Suarez was trying to force a move to Arsenal and Gerard made the point that, you know, Arsenal were roughly on the same level as Liverpool at that point. He said, stay at Liverpool, have one more really good campaign and you can go to Barcelona or Real Madrid rather than Arsenal. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. So, yeah, it started with Imagine Suarez. if Luis Suarez had gone to Arsenal. Well, would they still yeah. be... You know, in that well, kind so of decline. Presu- that Presumably, they, they wouldn't have bought Mesut Ozil, who was the player that they went out and got instead. Is it, would that uh, be yeah, 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 that is right. I mean, <laughs> it's a funny thing looking back. Arsenal were, you know, the Arsenal fans were wanting a defensive midfielder or a centre-forward or a centre-back and they end up getting Ozil. Um, who can do all three, to be fair. Yeah, and frequently does. Um, but, I mean, even Arsenal's campaign in isolation was very strange because they started the season with a 3-1 home defeat to Aston Villa and the yeah. fans were... You know, maybe that was the first game I can remember where the fans had really, really turned on Wenger on the board and there was, you know, quite a lot of anger in the in the stands. And then Arsenal suddenly went on a great run and were five points clear by end of November, I think. Mm. Well, there were, there were so many interesting aspects. From Liverpool's point of view, the transition from Brendan Rodgers' kind of avowed possession game, death by football, as he put it, to the counter-attacking approach, which took them to that extraordinary finale. We'll look at how their title challenge panned out in a second, but there was so much else to enjoy in that season. Tom, United were the reigning champions, but they just appointed David Moyes. His contract only just expired wow. uh, last year, didn't it? The six-year contract. Six-year contract. Uh, Ed Woodward coming in uh, that summer as well. Uh, that was the season when you remember everybody who'd never won at Old Trafford suddenly won at Old Trafford. <laughs> uh, including had, Everton. Including I mean, some, Everton, some people yeah. look back and think, oh, Moyes record at Old Trafford wasn't that bad with the Wayside, but actually it was once he took over at Manchester United. That, that was the, also, do you remember, did they play Fulham and they, they made about 700 crosses? The game of all the crosses, yeah. 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 The Premier League crossing record. It was also the season of Fulham having three managers, Martin Yol, then René Merlenstein, and then, drumroll please, Felix Magath and his magic cheese. Do you mm. remember that? Mm-hmm. Magic cheese on your knees? Fantastic. Tom, what other memories do you have of 2013-14? Well, it was the first season that I had covered the Premier League in its entirety. I'd moved back from Paris uh, end of 2012. Um, so I was there for quite a lot of the pivotal moments. I remember in particular the, the Liverpool title running um, and all the excitement to build up around that and the, the, the fans going out to welcome the team bus with the flares and all the rest of it. And the, the Liverpool-Man City game, which I know we're going to talk about uh, in a moment. I, um, I'd not been to a game at Anfield that season prior to that and they didn't have any room for me in the press box. So they put me right at the back of the main stand with all the fans. I was sitting there with my laptop on my lap, feeling a bit conspicuous. And towards the end of the game, it was it was 2-2. Liverpool are sort of pushing for victory. Um, and I thought, actually, I'm not going to get any work done here. It's very tense. Um, I'll go down to the media room. Uh, and when 
Coutinho scored the goal that gave Liverpool victory, I heard the fans celebrate before I saw it on the TV. And it sounded like a train roaring past. It was incredible. And there was a bunch of Liverpool staff kind of hovering around the media room who celebrated as if they'd seen the goal, whereas they were purely just reacting to the sound. Uh, and then sure enough, about 10 seconds later, it popped up on the TV uh, and we were all up to speed. But right. yeah, lots of very vivid memories of that campaign. You had Andre Villas-Boas at Spurs. Uh, then giving way after a series of massive defeats to Tim Sherwood and his Gile. That was that season. You also had uh, Tony Pulis at uh, Crystal Palace. Premier League Manager of the Year, Tony Pulis at yeah. Crystal Palace. Uh, you had Welsh to Welsh there, Tom. Oh, I yeah, like that. Just giving game recognised games. The relegation battle was fascinating. You had Palo de Cano, who was the first manager sacked that season at Sunderland. Mm. Gus Poyet then coming in. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was managing... Uh, another red-shirted Premier League side, Cardiff City. Just on De Canio briefly, mm. Charlie very helpfully sent around uh, video footage of the moment De Canio went to go and sort of communicate with the Sunderland fans oh, after they'd amazing. lost at West Brom towards yeah. the beginning of the season. And he walks to the edge of the penalty area and then sort of stands there with his hands on his hips. And he's sort of talking to the fans, but obviously he's 30 yards away, so they have no idea what he's saying. He does this and amazing chin-up gesture. He does though. a chin-up gesture. And then the Sunderland fans are looking at him and a lot of them are just like shrugging. But they can't, like neither party can communicate with the other. So there's this really odd wordless standoff for about... Mm. Two minutes. To be and honest, then he just turns tail. Tom, I prefer on. it when Decanio goes over to the fans and keeps his arms by his side. So right. yeah, no, this I mean, is true. I actually thought that was a really interesting moment when he went and did that because it was almost like he was reading the reaction of the situation. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but it's almost like he looked at the stand and they weren't applauding. They weren't saying, "Come on, we'll see you next week." He, it was almost like he was looking at me. He was like, "It's not working here." And he turned around. He was like, "That's his moment." That's when he realised it was all over. Right. I mean, Sunderland are a fascinating team at this point. If you watch the kind of Premier League years, because they always seem to beat Man City. They always seem to beat Chelsea. Then you don't see anything of them for three months, and they're in the relegation zone. Then they keep on sacking their manager. And the managers they bring in, De Canio came out of nowhere. Poirier kind of came out of nowhere. Dick Advocat. I mean, yeah, where did that come wasn't from? Wasn't this when they had Defanti as their kind of sporting director and they brought back or they signed the South Korean guy who was ineligible and they played him and then they had to settle, I think with the FA, some big fee, uh, some big fine for basically fielding an ineligible player. Am I right? You might be. You might be. There's so many... Okay. Or is that season. just the championship manager region that I played myself? <laughs> I so. It was also the season that Alan Pardew and David Myler had that headbutt moment. Mm. And, and it was the, this season where he swore very loudly at Pellegrini. Yes. Well. Oh, yeah. the C word. <laughs> That's the one, yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, it was also the first season that we had goal line technology in the Premier League. Yes, And interestingly, yeah. the first goal that was scored using goal line technology uh, was uh, Edin Dzeko's opener in Man City's 4-2 win over Cardiff in the January. And that was in uh, City's 100th goal of the season in all competitions. So how come it took till January for them to give a goal through GDS? I think it was the first time they were able to say with certainty that had it not been for the referee's watch vibrating, right. the goal would not have been given. Wow. Remarkable, remarkable. All right, well, amidst all of that backdrop, we had these four contenders. You didn't have the text messages between Malky Mackay and... <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if you want to mention those, go right ahead. <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of things. Mm. A lot to unpick from that campaign. But... The title race of destiny awaited. February 2014, as you mentioned, Michael, Liverpool 
welcomed Arsenal to Anfield, had that incredible opening 20, 25 minutes when they destroyed the Gunners. Four goals, just one after the other, and they ended up 5-1 winners. Through for Sturridge, who's on to it. Sturridge in on goal for four! Yeah, it was an incredible performance, and I think that game of all of them shows the benefit um, for Liverpool that season that they didn't have European football, because not just the fitness and they were so fresh, but Rodgers clearly worked on game plans throughout the week. And I was reading, uh, I think Stephen Gerrard's autobiography was very interesting about how Rodgers did this, because in general, players don't really like thinking about the opposition too much throughout the week. So Rodgers would kind of, and I guess this is a kind of standard thing, but it was interesting to read in detail how he would do the scouting early doors, he'd formulate his plans, and then he'd have very specific training ground drills on the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, but wouldn't actually speak directly about why they were doing them and how to exploit the opposition until the Thursday and Friday. And I just think having that five-day period to build up to a big game on the Saturday was such a boost compared to the sides who had Champions League and Europa League football. And that game was the perfect example because the way that they kind of almost boxed in Mesut Ozil and, I mean, Ozil's had some dodgy games for Arsenal over the years, but that was a real, you know, really poor performance from him. They kept on winning the ball off him and just breaking so quickly. I think in behind Monreal in particular, Raheem Sterling was brilliant that day. I think it's maybe the best attacking performance I've ever seen by a striker who didn't score because Suarez was sensational and I think hit the bar from a free kick from about 35 yards and assisted a couple of goals, but didn't get on the score sheet himself. It was, yeah, I mean, that felt like a real pivotal day in terms of even though Arsenal were top it almost seemed to kill off their title hopes then right. and, and Liverpool and Liverpool, were, Liverpool com- were fourth at the time coming into that yeah, game yeah so they, I mean they made a really late run of it and but then they go on this run of 11 straight uh, wins yeah the penultimate one of which the 10th in that series was the 3-2 over Man City which in your book you, you describe as one of or if not the greatest game in, in Premier League history what makes that 3-2 so much more special than say all the ones that Spurs have had this season Um, I mean one because it really felt like a title decider um, which we hadn't had for a few years at that point obviously Chelsea were still in the mix and would play their part later on but it really felt like these were the two sides going for the title and I think when you look at the context of the day it was just an incredibly emotional day at Anfield because it was bookended by one the 25th uh, anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster and the commemoration of that and then by the famous kind of Gerard moment afterwards end, yeah. and then the game in between was just this incredible level of intensity where Liverpool stormed into an early two goal lead City really seemed out of it at that point and then in the second half City just came on really strong David Silva had this brilliant 10 or 15 minute spell where he put City back in the game and then Liverpool won it very late through a goal from Coutinho and a mistake through company and I must say if you watch that game back the strange thing isn't just that company made really three errors for the three goals that Liverpool scored, but this is the time where he's playing alongside Martin Dimichaelis, and Dimichaelis is really seen as this kind of, you know, disastrous, hapless right. centre-back. And both Suarez and Sturridge basically gang up on Dimichaelis and try and go for him. Dimichaelis actually plays really well, and it's company who really lets the side down. And when Coutinho scored that goal, it felt like Liverpool had won the league at that point. And I think when you look at the... The way that they were speaking afterwards, obviously they said, we've still got to play three games, I think. But they really believed at that point that they had, you know, defeated their nearest challenges and were on the way to the title. Company. Coutinho! Liverpool lead again! It's 10 out of 10 for Liverpool. It has been a Sunday to remember at Anfield. Liverpool lengthen their lead in the title race. Stephen Gerrard with tears in his eyes. That's what it means. This is gone. We've all got it. Oh! 
one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in Premier League history there, Steven Gerrard, post-game uh, against Man City. Yeah, I mean, it felt iconic straight away because you saw what it meant to the players, and in particular Steven Gerrard. And as Michael says, we all felt that was going to be the result that would propel them on to win the title. But then subsequently what happened against Chelsea in the famous slip, um, Gerrard's words in that post-match huddle took yeah. on completely new meaning um, and just made it even more of an iconic moment. Absolutely. Well, before that, and the match that Gerard was saying, you know, next we go to Norwich, this does not slip. And it didn't. They beat them 3-2 again, funnily enough. Leaving with three games to go, Liverpool five points clear of Chelsea in six of Man City, although City did have a game in hand. So next up, yes, they're at home to Chelsea. Destiny awaits. Chelsea had rested the first team because they had the Champions League coming up. And the first half was pretty uneventful, Michael, but then... Oh, and Gerrard slipped, and Denver Barr's in here. Out comes Mignolet, but Barr punishes of all people, Steven Gerrard. And the it's funny thing is, I, I don't think people really realise what the extent of what happened in that situation. Everyone thinks that Gerrard just slipped over, but there's a really interesting backstory, I think. So Gerrard was playing at the time in this deep midfield role, which he'd never really played, at least not for the previous 15 years. He'd started out as a bit of a defensive midfielder. He was playing a more attacking role, and he was really unhappy with his performances at the turn of the year and went to Brendan Rodgers and said, look, I don't think I'm really doing it at the moment. I need to, I need to do something different. And Rodgers spent a couple of evenings watching a load of tapes of Gerrard's performance and he said that the, the thing that he wasn't impressed by, the thing he needed to improve upon, was his head movement when he received the ball. He wasn't scanning the pitch properly. And they agreed that one, he had to work on that and two, to help him get a better picture of the pitch, he should be brought into this deep role. And so Gerrard's... have more time or to read? Well, because you can see, you know, if you're, if you're playing as a number 10 attacking midfielder, you receive the ball with players around you. If you play a deep role, you can usually glance up and see the pitch okay. ahead of you. So then, once you know that, it's really interesting what Gerard does in that situation because he receives a pass, I think 15-yard pass from Sacco from the left flank. And he has three looks over his shoulder towards the, the far side, whoever's on that side. He's clearly about to play a diagonal pass. The third look, it seems unnecessary when you watch it back, but he's clearly got this thing inside him. I've got to scan the pitch all the time. And so the mistake isn't actually the slip. The mistake is that he miscontrols the ball because he's not looking at the ball. He's looking over his shoulder. The first mistake is the miscontrol. Then he's so desperate to make up for it that he tries to sprint and then slips and then Denver goes through and scores. But I think there's more context than just him falling over. I think there was a quite a complex tactical reason for why he was glancing over his shoulder rather than glancing down at his his feet. Right. As Tom says, everybody laughed because he said slip. Yes, haha. Um, I, I must say, I think I think this game has been the subject of more after the fact revisionism than almost any game in the Premier League era. And that what you often hear these days is that Liverpool, led by Brendan Rodgers, blundered into Jose Mourinho's tactical trap and this very naive team that we knew couldn't defend for butter anyway mm. threw away the title. Whereas a draw was good enough in this game for Brian. Liverpool. Yes, they came out and attacked, but this is a team who only knew one way of playing. A team that had only really come into existence in the January. This wasn't the fruit of years of steady progress like Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. This was an opportunistic grab for the title. And I I, I don't think there's any other way that Liverpool could have approached this. Mm. 
knowing that a draw was a good enough result for them, because had they drawn this game and then won their last two games, they would have been champions. I think the way they went about the game was entirely normal. And it wasn't like they went absolutely hell for leather and left massive gaps at the back. And I genuinely think if it's not for that mistake by Gerrard, because up to that point, the first half had been quite even, few chances for both teams. Chelsea spoiling it. I remember it, they won a goal kick inside the first 10 minutes and Mark Forza was time-wasting and you realised and everyone in the ground realised immediately, OK, we know how this is going to play out. Minutes later, you've got Gerard having to wrestle the ball off Mourinho to take a quick throw in. I genuinely feel that if Gerard doesn't slip at that moment, I, I don't see Chelsea getting ahead without that. And if Chelsea don't get ahead, Liverpool don't lose the game. Hmm. And if Liverpool don't lose the game, they win the title because they don't then go on and collapse at Palace because they're crazily trying to, you know, hunt down this, right. this, right. Uh, right. you know, this supposed uh, goal difference. Um, so I, I, yeah. I mean, just on the time waiting, supposedly in Mourinho's pre-match team talk, he said to his players, right, first half, I want two bookings for time wasting, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, not picking up a point did, as you say, turn out quite crucial because it left with two games to go, both Liverpool and Man City on 80 points. City, though, had a better goal difference, nine goals better, which leads us to Selhurst Park, a.k.a. Christian Bull, as Liverpool essentially try and recover across this and their final game, Newcastle, would be the theory, that nine-goal difference in, in two matches. Yeah, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but I don't think it was beyond them. I mean, Liverpool were beating sides 4-0, 5-0. You look at Newcastle's results, they didn't have Pardew for seven games because he'd headbutted David Myler. They were losing 4-0 every week. And people say, well, you know, Liverpool weren't going to beat Newcastle 10-0. You know, you never get a 10-0 in football. But there's never been a situation in really in the history of the Premier League where a side needs to win 10-0. And you've got the, you know, a team who had the two top goal scorers in the entire league right. against probably the worst defensive team at that Sterling point. As well coming through. If they'd had to score 10 goals to win the league, and by this point, you know, City had the advantage, so it, it was immaterial, I think they would have given it a really good go to score 10 goals. Well, so game. they did at Crystal Palace, I suppose, because they're 3-0 up and they... Yeah, I mean, and Suarez scores the third and immediately goes to get the ball, pushes a defender out of the way and runs back to the halfway line. And they were just trying to make up the goals during that, during that time and obviously left the the back door open and mm. and the fixtures have worked out so that City still had to play their penultimate game on the Wednesday and okay you can say the games were against uh, West Ham and Villa and you can say okay City were always going to win those games but this isn't the City of Guardiola this is a City who the year before they lost the FA Cup final to Wigan the year before that okay the Aguero moment but they needed the Aguero moment because they couldn't beat QPR. QPR at home who hadn't won away all season so this was a City side that I wouldn't use the phrase bottlers, but they they weren't the most consistent. They weren't right. a side who really thrived under pressure. So if Liverpool had just won 3-0, um, they would have put City under real pressure going into those last two games. And mm. in the end, of course, they didn't. Murray, chance here. I was at Selhurst Park for that and had ah, probably cool. the most stressful match reporting experience of my life. I was in the overspill press box at Selhurst Park. You're always there, Tom. Always there, <laughs> but, but but right at the back, in like the worst seats. I had no, I couldn't plug my laptop in. We had no video replay screens. The Wi-Fi was dropping in and out. And on that night, the overspill press box doubled as a kind of unofficial hospitality suite. So there were a bunch of young um, Palace fans in there knocking back the beers. And as Palace started roaring, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> sorry, different kind of overspill, I imagine. <laughs> 
different, different well, a very different kind of overspill. And as Palace start coming back into the game, they're going absolutely crazy. And I'm trying to make sense of what's happening from the wrong end of the pitch to where right. the Palace goals are going in, unable to see any replays uh, in this sort of state of absolute bedlam. Wow. Um, I want to read so your yeah. match report. Though. Yeah, probably not. I, I would not <laughs> recommend it as a, as a read. As it turned out, uh, Man City were champions then under Manuel Pellegrino, later of uh, West Ham, of course. Uh, fired by them this season. The only non-European manager to ever win the Premier League. Mm. Remarkable. Suarez finished with 31 goals in what was his final season in England. Not bad, given he'd uh, missed the first five games of the season. He was top scorer and PFA and Football Writers Player of the Year. And Liverpool's long wait for the title continued. Well, there you go, James. That was the 2013-2014 season. Mm. We'll not see it's like again. No, I mean I've, I've I've missed Vincent Tan and his with the hand, the hand, yeah, yeah. Uh, the leather gloves, the leather gloves, yeah. I, it seems so rich and uh, colourful now. Mm. That, looking back, yeah. Mm. There was also, I mean, there were so many weird incidents that season. But uh, one that people forget is maybe the only example of a player being sacked for a goal celebration. Do you remember oh. who was who that was? Nicola Ronelka. Very good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Quinnell. Quinnell. Yeah. Oh, which, wow. Which was quite a serious... Th- I mean, I'd never heard of this symbol mm. before. I mean, yeah. he was introduced it to the country and ended up his contract being terminated, which was extraordinary. Well, because it seems such an anodyne thing and because no one was familiar with it in this country, he did it and no one batted an eyelid. And then there were, you know, people who were... I must admit, I'd, I'd not heard of this Giudone guy, mm. uh, the comedian who he'd taken it from. I remember Philippe O'Claire saying, hang on, what the heck is this? Like, did he just do a canal? And then suddenly it just explodes. Wow. Um, uh, where's he now, by the way, Nicholas Anelka? He's setting up his own academy in northern France, an academy called NA39, which is his initials and uh, his preferred his shirt number. Right. Right. Uh, and it's just for strikers. Okay. Yeah. Why not? I expect he's probably playing somewhere as well. Seeing that he's, he did have this, you it's know, quite nomadic you know, end of end of career phase mm. of of globe trotting. He was a brilliant player in Elka. I think he's hugely underrated. Yeah. Actually, won the Scudetto with Juventus, well, along with Benzema. Favorite goals mm. is his goal in the '98 FA Cup final mm. against New. It's just the most fantastically simple centre forwards finish. Chest down a, a, a long ball, mm. knocks it out of his feet, bangs it bottom left past Shea Given. Well, I tell you what, if we have time in our busy schedules, one day we should do a, a Nicholas Anelka retro well, special. he was player coach of Shanghai Shenhua, oh. Mumbai City FC as well. But, uh, he's apparently working in Lille's youth sector as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, with, yes, that's right. He's, uh, he's working as a striker's coach. Players, uh, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about Anelka is he came through as like a real pacey forward who just went in behind and got right. in the end of three balls. But... I mean, we could save this for Wait, Let's for save time. that top content for our Anelka. Yeah. Well, as long as you invite me on. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, I think that was pretty fascinating. And if you enjoyed that, listener, then make sure to check out, if you haven't already, The Mixer, Michael's excellent uh, uh, chronicle of the evolution, tactically and also socially and kind of otherly things of the Premier League. Nice. Now, that brings us pretty much to the end of today's Totally Football Show. So there you go. Tuesday, we're going to be back, though, James. You're going to be back here as our Euro show brings you all the latest news from around those European leagues. Uh, we'll be talking Alan Pardew, latest news on him at Den Haag. Uh, we'll also have a bit of a deep dive into a classic Euro game of the past, which I'm looking forward to because it features one of the most controversial people in football. Oh, yeah? What game is it? Find out, James. <laughs> Find out. <laughs> Soon there will be Galazzo's. 
Yeah, we've recorded three. Yep. So they'll be coming out soon. Thursday, then, we've got a very busy show. Uh, we've got Jack Lang, who's going to be in and with the latest on Ronaldinho behind bars. <laughs> and Nick Miller with his commentary quiz. Probably will be selling homemade jam. And we'll be beginning our brand new uh, section, which is Flicks and Kicks. It's our football film club. <laughs> uh, and we're going to inaugurate it with Green Street. Green Street. Mm. Got so many great football films to look back on. And I think what would be nice is uh, is if you listen and want to watch Green Street, or as much of it as you can stomach, and then send us your thoughts, and we'll have a bit of a chat about that, because it is an extraordinary film. Mm. Anyway. Elijah Wood. Um, oh, yeah. At his, at his best. Yeah. That's how he got the Hobbit role, no? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of similarities between his trip into the heartland of West Ham and his journey to Mordor and the, you know, like, a lamp. No, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Anyway, that's it for today. Listen, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, as I say, we're back here on Tuesday morning, so why not stop by then? Until then, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Hello, I'm Emma. And I'm Jeffers. And we're the Series Linked Podcast. Subscribe to our channel for all of the biggest TV interviews. And to stay on top of all the latest telly. It said Gervais sometimes fluffs his lines. Like I'd have left them in. It's a stunning place to shoot. I like put something up on Instagram and there's somebody a post going, oh, you, look at you, lazy-eyed, you're ugly, aren't you? And on the way in upcoming episodes, we speak to Imelda Staunton, David Baddiel, Carl Pilkington and many more. Just search for Series Linked. That's Series Linked. Muddy Knees Media.